Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. This is the Tribune Audio Network. From the heart of motorsports in North Carolina, the Fox 8 sports team presents NASCAR Dirty Air. Fast friends, dangerous enemies. And now, here's your host, Kevin Connolly, along with the Fox 8 sports team. I realized at a very young age, if I wanted to accomplish anything or make anything of myself, that I had to work hard and go get it for myself. Eric Almarola, one of the very first graduates of NASCAR's diversity program, is accomplishing a lot and seems to be entering his prime as a race car driver. Without that break and that opportunity, I'd probably end up stuck in Florida for the rest of my life. Almarola even caught the attention of the king, Richard Petty, and spent time in the famous 43 car. That was the first organization that I had been to that I didn't really feel like an employee. I felt like I was part of the family. Now behind the wheel of a car from Stuart Haas Racing, one of NASCAR's powerhouse teams, Al Marola is a threat to win just about every week. We all love to win. Winning is more fun than anything else, but occasionally we have to learn how to lose too. His most difficult loss happened in the sport's biggest race, the Daytona 500, when Austin Dillon moved him out of the way on the last lap. Al Marola was very gracious in the aftermath. That's exactly what comes to mind. Close but no cigar. You don't have to be like Kyle Busch. You can be mad and you can not like to lose, but that you can do it with grace. It is a moment that has helped define Almarola's career. Learn more about Eric Almarola on this edition of Fox 8's Dirty Air. Hello, race fans, and welcome to Dirty Air, a Fox 8 podcast celebrating the rich history of NASCAR racing. We do that by talking with many of the biggest names in the sport, men and women that help grow NASCAR from a small regional sport into the national spectacle that it has become today. A multi-billion dollar industry with many moving parts and pieces and just as many stories to go along with those parts and pieces. I'm Kevin Conley, along with producer Kevin Wren. A special treat today, driver Eric Almarola driver of the number 10 car for Stuart Haas Racing. Eric, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I am already excited about being on this podcast because I only have to remember one name. I just have to say, yeah, that's right, Kevin. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. right. That's... <laughs> All right, well, we're, we're going to kind of talk you through your career, your current situation, maybe throw in a few questions about life away from the track so fans can really get a better picture yeah. of just who Eric Almarola is. Now, first... The biggest break you think you've ever had in your racing career. Now, I first heard your name when you were racing at the Ace Speedway near Burlington, North Carolina, and that was a long time ago. But I'm curious, what was the really one big break that you got that sort of sparked your NASCAR career? Well, that was it. Um, You know, growing up racing in Florida, I had done it predominantly as a hobby. Um, racing go-karts, you know, watching my grandfather race as a hobby, 
Um, he was very successful at it, but he races a hobby. He spent his own money to go do it. Um, he did not do it, you know, to, to, to make a profession out of it. He owned an auto body shop. But then, you know, as I started my racing career and he quit racing and, and started investing in me, I did it purely for, for hobby, just for, for love of the game, right? And it wasn't until while I was going to college at UCF, thinking that I would never make it as a professional race car driver just because the, you know, the, the chances are pretty slim. There's only 40, at the time, 43 people that drive in the Cup Series and that make a good living at it. Uh, and, and besides that, um, you know, there's tens of thousands of people that want to get, that aspire to get to there. Um, so when you look at the odds, the odds are not really in your favor. So I went to school to become a mechanical engineer at UCF in Orlando. And the reason I was going to become a mechanical engineer was so that I could move to North Carolina and work in racing. I, I've always had a passion for racing, always dreamed about being involved in racing on some level, primarily as a race car driver, but thinking that that would not happen. But while I was going to school at UCF, um, in the USA Today, uh, one random morning, uh, my mom came across an article in the USA Today that said that Reggie White, the former football player for the Green Bay Packers, Philadelphia Eagles, and a little bit for Carolina Panthers, um, was going to start a a diversity race team. Mm-hmm. And he got together with Coach Joe Gibbs and because they had a prior relationship and, of course, through football. And he said, I, I want to start a race team and I want to give young guys that come from a diverse background uh, an opportunity. And so they did. They put it out in the USA Today that they were going to start this race team. And for anybody that thought they qualified, um, send in a resume. And so... I sent in a resume along with thousands of other kids um, that wanted that opportunity, and and they narrowed it down to about 20 drivers, and I was one of the 20 they selected. And then we we all went to Hickory, North Carolina, to do a test. And I was one of the 20 that they selected to be their full-time driver for their their program. Wow. And that was my my break. That was my chance to, to leave Florida, doing it as a hobby, something that I was spending a lot of my, my family's money doing. Um, and, and that gave me the opportunity to move to North Carolina, drive for a fully funded team to where I wasn't, I wasn't paying to do it anymore. Now I was getting paid. Um, I remember thinking that, uh, you know, I was 19 years old and I thought I had hit the lottery. I was, I was making, I was making $400 a week uh, to work on the race car during during the week, and then I got to I split the prize money. So if I won and it paid a thousand dollars to win at A Speedway, I got half. If I finished last and it paid fifty dollars to finish last, I got half. So um, so my week's pay could vary based uh, vary pretty drastically uh, based on how well I did week to week. But yeah, that was that was my first big break, and that was my first you know real opportunity to become a professional. What was that test at Hickory like? First time you kind of got in one of those cars was did it go good? Yeah, it went really good. Um, I was I was the fastest there at the test, and it was more there was more to the test than just driving the race car as well. Um, they had kind of like a, a mock media bullpen, and they wanted to see all the drivers get in front of a camera. They they asked us questions, they recorded us, 
and went back and watched. And, and they wanted somebody not only that was going to be able to drive the race car, but somebody that was going to represent their program well. Um, and, and so apparently I did good enough in all the different categories um, to, uh, to, to you know, get that opportunity. They called me back a few weeks later and told me I had the job if I wanted to move to North Carolina. So I had to call my mom, tell her that I was, that I was dropping out of my classes at UCF and that I was moving to North Carolina to go racing. Wow. Yeah. That is a great story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's, that's, that's my big break. Obviously, from that point forward, I've had a lot of other great opportunities. But without, without that break and that opportunity, mm-hmm. I probably end up stuck in Florida for the rest of my life. Gotcha. Gotcha. All right. So connection to Joe Gibbs Racing. You drove at DEI at one point, along with Mark Martin as a co-driver mm-hmm. for a, a team there. You drove for the king, Richard Petty. Tony Stewart now. Boy, you do want to talk about personalities, a range of personalities. You certainly have experienced that. What's it like? What are some of the maybe the traits that they share and what makes them so different and successful as as team owners that you've experienced? Well, I, I'd say, you know, the, those those teams in specific, Joe Gibbs Racing, DEI. DEI was kind of a, a weird situation. When I got there, it was going through some turmoil. Um, you know, the uh, ownership was, was changing. They, they were in the process of merging with Ginn mm-hmm. um, when Ginn was going bankrupt. And it was, it was very, very awkward times. Um, and Teresa wanted very little to, to no involvement. Um, so she, you know, kind of let it go by the wayside and then and in, ended up going into a merger with Ganassi um, during that time span. I was only there for a little over a year, but while I was there in the beginning, um, it, it, was, it was really unique because it was kind of run by a bunch of just racers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was no real management per se, um, the guys down on the shop basically ran the place. Um, you know, Teresa, like I said, didn't want much involvement. She just said, you know, you guys have a budget and this is how much you have to spend and figure it out go, go make the best of it. Um, and there was really no, um, micromanaging per se. And so it was really fun, uh, for a little while of being there just because it was, it was really kind of a racer's dream. Um, but Joe Gibbs racing, and you know now being at Stuart Haas Racing and, and being a, around the different teams that I've been, and even Richard Petty Motorsports for that matter, um, the one common thing that everybody has is a deep, deep, deep passion for racing. Um, you know, over the years of, of me being around the sport, I've seen people come into the sport and I've seen people leave the sport. Um, and usually the people that come in and, and leave are typically the people that come in and think that they're going to make this some sort of business sense out of, out of racing. Um, and that's just not the case, right? right? Like people that are involved in racing do it because they absolutely love racing. Um, it's not a good business model. Uh, everybody says, if you want to become a millionaire in racing, start with a billion, right? (laughs) right. Um, you know, I, I think that that's, that's the old age, you know, motto of racing is that it, it costs money to go fast. Um, and, and so when you look at these different teams that I've been a part of, they, they just, it starts with passion, um, passion for racing, passion for being involved in motorsports and particularly in NASCAR. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And then from that point, they all vary, you know, a lot. All the way back to Joe Gibbs Racing, it was run extremely, extremely professional, um, very, you know, very, very buttoned up, very white collar, very, um, you know, everybody, everybody's shirts tucked in and, and got a belt on and, and very, very professional. Um, and then, you know, when I was at DEI, it was, you know, jeans, cowboy boots, <laughs> shirt tails out. And that's the way Dale Sr., you know, had it. He, did, he wasn't – everything appeared very nice. Um, you know, the, it wasn't that everybody was sloppy, but it was, it was more casual, more right. relaxed. Um, then, you know, RPM, uh, again, very casual, very relaxed. The king, um, you know, is, is just the king. Yeah, good, old, right. good old boy from Greensboro, right? So, um, you know, way, way more relaxed environment. Um, but our RPM differed from all the other organizations that I was at during my time there was that RPM was really about family. Um, that was the first organization that I had been to that I didn't really feel like an employee I felt like I was part of the family, and they treat everybody that way. When you work for Richard Petty Motorsports, you're part of the family, and and you feel that way. You you're you're treated that way. You feel that way, and it's it's really cool. Uh, when I first started there, you know, my relationship with the king was was kind of like boss, you know, <laughs> and worker, and quickly that transitioned to kind of a friendship. Um, and as time went on, I really felt like I was one of his grandchildren. Um, you know, he just treated me that way. He treated me, um, really, really well, like, you know, like he loved me. And that was, that was a lot of fun. That was really cool to be a part of an organization like that and to work with such an icon of our sport and, and somebody who's so infamous, um, you know, in, in, in all of the world, not just for motorsports. Um, and then now coming here to Stuart Haas Racing, it's really just diehard racer um you know you've got gene which you know has the financial ability to spend whatever it takes to make race cars go fast and he's just been around racing forever and loves it um and he's got a very unique interesting mindset um you know obviously from running a very successful you know cnc machine business to whatever it takes here you know at the, at the racing level to figure out how to make our cars go fast he gives us the tools and resources we need to to do that um and then having tony stewart as part of the ownership i mean you look up racer in the dictionary and tony stewart's pictures there i mean the guy will get in any sort of vehicle um it doesn't matter if it's a minivan at the rental car place (laughs) or a sprint car or an indy car or a nascar cup car whatever it is he's going to get in it and he's going to go race I heard that you've gone to some of the dirt races with him. Uh, what have, was that experience like? Well, I've gone a lot. Um, you know, I grew up going dirt racing with my grandfather, um, and I even go-kart raced on dirt. When when I was a kid, racetracks were dirt. <laughs> Asphalt was for getting there, yeah. right? Like, And we used to say that, like um you know used to used to make fun of people that raced on asphalt we'd say asphalt's for getting to the track dirt's where you know dirt's where real real racers are made um but my grandfather quickly transitioned as i got older he said you know he said i learned a lot of bad habits driving on dirt racing sprint cars and so I really think that in order for you to make it somewhere if you ever want to be a professional race car driver and and make money at it it's in NASCAR, and if you're going to do that, you need to learn how to drive on asphalt. Mm-hmm. And so I started driving on asphalt. But I have a deep love 
for dirt racing. And so when I moved to North Carolina and was at Joe Gibbs racing, Tony Stewart was there racing a cup car at the time. And uh, we built a great friendship and a great bond really early on. And when he would go sprint car racing, he'd say, hey, I'm going sprint car racing tonight. And we'd be at whatever NASCAR track and practice would end at two, three o'clock in the afternoon. And we'd go hop on his airplane and fly somewhere across the country to go race a sprint car. And he'd go race and I'd go turn wrenches and scrape mud and, and, and just love it. Do you think your grandpa was right? Was that the best uh, avenue for you? It worked. Yeah. It worked out. So it, it'd be hard at this point to second guess it because it, it worked out in my favor. And, and I'm sitting here talking to you as one of the, the few that get to race at the highest level in, in, in NASCAR motorsports. So it worked, but I don't think it's the only answer. There's, there's, there's multiple ways to, uh, to skin a cat. And so we've seen... You know, we've seen over the years a lot of guys come from dirt racing and be very, very successful. We've seen a lot of guys come from stock car, you know, late model asphalt racing and be successful. Um, it, it, talent's talent, and if you can if you can be good and go fast on dirt, then you've got a shot. And if you can be be good and go fast on asphalt, then you've got a shot. Through the course of our short conversation, you've mentioned your grandfather several times. Yeah. One of the, or if not the most influential person in your life? Absolutely. Um, you know, growing up, being a kid, you know, wanting to go to the racetrack and, and just that adrenaline rush that you get being at the racetrack. Um, you know, I looked up to my grandfather. He was, he was, he was a superhero, you know. I mean, he, I vividly remember, um, you know, on Saturday nights being at the racetrack with them and, and them getting lined up for the, the feature event and riding the four-wheeler with my dad, pushing my grandfather up to get ready to get pushed off for the main event. And my dad going, and, and I, I remember this very, very vividly, but my grandfather would be buckled into his seat. My dad would take a, a long screwdriver and put it through the, le- the lap belt on the, la- on the left side of the car and just pull the lap belt as tight as he possibly could. My grandfather would give him the thumbs up, and then he'd pull his shoulder harnesses down as tight as he could, and we'd push him off on the four-wheeler to go get um, picked up by a push truck, and then the push truck would push him off in his sprint car to go get ready for the race. For me, in my mind, and I've never you know, really even talk to my grandfather about it. But for me, in my mind, it was like he was a warrior. Like he, like he was getting, he was getting strapped in as tight as he possibly could because he was, you know, he was getting ready to go get after it. And, (laughs) and he, he might wreck, he might flip, he might, you know, whatever. So that was his last, you know, line of defense was to get just strapped into this thing that had, eight, 900 horsepower and, and weighed hardly anything, um, to go race. And, and so I, I always remembered that and he was very successful. Um, you know, he worked really hard at it. It was not his, it wasn't his job. Um, but you know, he had an auto body business. He worked eight to five, eight to six at his auto body shop. And then he would work from the time the body shop closed till who knows what time (laughs) at night trying to work on his sprint car to make his sprint car go fast. And that was every night, every night, every week. It was just Groundhog's Day, and and that's what it took for him to be successful. And, you know, for a kid to go and watch him race and and to, you know, not only feel that adrenaline rush of of watching, you know, these 
high horsepower race cars go around the racetrack. But on top of that, the fact that he was successful and after the races were over, I'd get to go to Victory Lane and celebrate and get my picture taken with him in Victory Lane and, and my dad and, and the other crew guys. It was just really cool and a really cool experience most Saturday nights. And so I just always had a, an aspiration to do that. That's awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. All right. 2018 Daytona 500. What comes to mind? for you you were so close that's exactly what comes to mind close very close di- close but no cigar very difficult right? situation um yeah. last lap austin dillon used the used the bumper but i want to say you handled yourself with such class amazing yeah. after that race how difficult was that moment for you it was really difficult um you know i had i had some time to cool down so i think if a if a camera and a microphone got put in my face immediately um when i got out of the car when i was wrecked on the back straightaway it probably would have been slightly different than (laughs) than you know 15 minutes later by the time i've taken a an ambulance ride to the infield care center been checked by the doctors um tony stewart my boss was in there he came in there he talked to me um told me he was really proud of me didn't care you know, either way, he would have loved to have celebrated with me in victory lane, but that, that, that doesn't take anything away from the night that we had that night and that he was proud of me. And he, you know, he told me, he said, Hey, go, go, go do the right thing for your sponsors, all of our partners, all of the, and he said, I've made that mistake many a times. And I was like, I know you're right. You're right. I walked out of the infield care center and they, there they were, there was yeah. the media. Um, <laughs> and, and I just, I kept I kept saying in in my head to myself when I walked out of the Enfield Care Center, I kept thinking that my two kids I've got a six year old and a five year old now so they would have been five and four. I kept saying to myself that I've got them in my motorhome, and they have not seen me, and they're probably watching the TV, so this is my opportunity to be a good role model for them, right? Um, you know, I've, I had already played enough games of shoots and ladders in Candyland with them to know that both my kids inherently are sore losers, and they get it, they get it honestly. Um, both mom and dad are very, very competitive, and so we don't like to lose, but this was my opportunity to, to practice what I preach. And so I held my head high and, fo- and chose to focus on the positives, and you know multiple reasons but is not only it's better for me it's a better example for all the other kids out there that look up to me that want to be a race car driver one day um that you don't have to be like Kyle Busch um <laughs> that you can that you can be um you can be mad and you can not like to lose but that you can do it with grace um and, and then you know also on top of that for my own children just making sure that you know they that they see that as an example um you know that we all love to win winning is more fun than anything else but occasionally you know we we have to we have to learn how to lose too you want i think you want a lot of fans that night i really (laughs) truly do um you mentioned your kids yeah how has fatherhood changed you as uh, a person and maybe changed you as a race car driver well as a person, I think fatherhood changes most people as in the fact that it, it life is no longer about you. 
um, for most of your life when you're growing up into your teens, into your early 20s. And for me, you know, life was about me. Um, you know, life was about what I wanted to do, when I wanted to do it, especially when I got my license. Yeah, you know, it was, it was, li- life was about me. Um, and, and then even so, like through dating and getting married, like life was still about me. Like I was making the choices. Like it, this is the girl I want to date. This is the girl I want to marry. This is the life I want to lead. This is, you know, this is where we're going to live. This is like everything is about you and your choice and, and, you weigh in very heavily on the decision-making process. When you have kids, the instant you have kids, you find out very quickly that life is no longer about you. Um, And so I think that was the biggest change for me as a a person um, was learning how to accept that Um, because we waited quite a while to have kids. I think when our, our first child was born, I was 29. When our second child was born, I was 30. So, you know, I, I think for me learning how to basically sacrifice um, had never really entered the picture very much. Um, and so that was that was a challenge in the beginning, you know, just the sleep deprivation and, and all of those things. Like when the baby cries, you respond. And when, when the baby needs X, Y, Z, you respond. And, like, everything becomes about them. Um, and that was the biggest challenge. But I've... I've I've adapted right um, as most dads do. And it, has it changed you at all as a driver? I think the one thing that it's done for me as a race car driver is is having kids. Having kids now as as a race car driver has has made me has has made me think about what I'm doing and making sure it's worth it. Um, when I before pre kids, I would I would get in any race car. Didn't matter if somebody said hey. I'm going to go run whatever. I'm going to go run a mod. I got a modified sitting here, and you're off this weekend. Do you want to go race? I'd be like, yeah, let's go. I'm in. You know, now it's like, well, I don't get that many off weekends. I'm not home that much. I probably should spend it with the kids. We probably, you know, I probably should take them to the beach or go spend time with them. Um, Or the other question is, yeah, I'll – I would love to. How, what's it pay, right? <laughs> and so there's got to be like there's got to be something in it that I can that I can link back to helping my family. Where before it was like I don't care if you pay me; it doesn't matter. I'm just gonna go do it. I love to race. It's gonna be for fun, and we'll we'll have a good time. But now for me, it's it's really time away from my family is something I'll never get back. Uh, my kids are never gonna be six and five again. They'll never be five and four again. I'll never see them as three and two again. Like that time's gone. Right. So if I took time away from them, it, I need it to be worth it. Um, and, and so that's I think that's the one way it's changed me as a race car driver. A bad day at the track, you know, to come home to those kids. Does that put things into a lot of perspective for you? Um, yes, it does. So so yeah, I, I think. It's challenging though because my kids really understand racing and they get it, but then also also they're competitive, like their mom and dad. So I'll run I'll run seventh one day, and and if they're at the track with me or or even when I get home, they'll be like, "Good job, Dad! You finished seventh." But why didn't you win? You know? And it's like, well, I don't really want to answer your question on that. I had to answer the reporter's question on that. I had to answer my crew guys on that. Like. We we have we I have to answer to everybody else. Don't make me answer to you. 
Um, uh, so yeah, so it, it 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 has its pluses and minuses, but I know that they love me regardless. Yeah, uh, so that part makes it better. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, two career victories, Daytona and Talladega. What makes you such a great restrictor plate racer? Well, I want to win at other racetracks so that I don't get asked this question anymore. <laughs> I've been asked this question quite a bit, um, but I do feel like I am pretty good at the restrictor plates. I think my stats prove that. Um, so it's I love it, the big tracks. Yeah, so I it, love Daytona. I love hard. when the cars are really close That's together. Right. So it's hard to deny that fact that that we have had some success, a lot of success on the restrictor plate tracks. Um, I can't put my finger on what makes me good at those places. I think the only thing that I can think is that everybody, you know, equates restrictor plate racing to a high-speed chess match. Um, and I think that I am pretty methodical at those tracks about how I race, when to be aggressive, when to, to make that run, when to be patient. Um, and those things matter, you know, because throughout – 500 miles at Daytona and Talladega, you get put in a lot of different circumstances and a lot of different situations. And having situational awareness um, and, and being able to to really think on the fly and make the right decision in the right moment is important at those places. Mm-hmm. I, when I when I watch those those races in particular, and any race really, and I hear the scanner traffic, I'm always amazed at drivers. You as well. You sound so calm. You're going 190 miles an hour in a car with everybody surrounding you, but you're talking on the radio like you're just having a conversation. Yeah. How do you stay so calm? Um, you just get used to it. You really do. It, 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 is, it is tense. It is stressful. But for some reason, the human body just knows how to adapt, right? Um, and you do. You just get really used to it. You get comfortable you get comfortable being uncomfortable. Um, you really do. You just, you, you learn. Yeah, and I've been doing it for years now, so it's the norm, right? You go to Daytona and Talladega, it's the norm to be three wide in the middle going 190, 200 miles an hour. Like, it's, it's perfectly normal. Um, and so you just learn to adapt and, and you've got to, you've got to be calm. If you, if you're not calm, you'll make a mistake. Um, you'll be, you'll be gripping the steering wheel too tight. You'll be frantic. You'll be nervous. You'll be way too edgy. Um, yeah, you've got, you've, you, you have to remain calm in those situations. And I think that that's, you know, that's one of those characteristics like, um, like a fighter pilot, right, in the middle of a dogfight, uh, he's going off of training. You know, instantly when you get into that situation, you're going off of training. You're going off of instinct. You're not going off of, you know, just panic and reacting. You're going off of instinct and, and years and years and years of training, um, and that helps you remain calm. No, no different than when you hear, you know, you hear – a pilot um, with an engine burned out on on his airplane and he's coming in for an emergency landing, typically they're not frantic screaming on the radio to air traffic control. They're very calm and very precise in describing what their problem is, that they need, they need an immediate runway, um, that they need the airspace cleared. They start going through their checklist of things that they need to, done to be able to safely land that plane, and that just comes through training. Bad things do happen in race cars. You were involved in, in a very, very scary crash in Kansas. Um, 
did that event in your life did that change your your perspective on things did was it tough to get back in that car no the getting back in the car was the easy part um the hard part for me was being out of the car um and that was great for me that was a a big slap in the face to be honest with you because at that time in 2017 um we had as as an organization at rpm and and for me personally in my career i'd really stopped progressing when i first got to rpm every year we got a little better a little better a little better we finally won a race we made the playoffs we ran really well in the playoffs the next year we ran really competitive all year almost made the playoffs on points and so every year it was just like a little better a little better a little better well that year we kind of flatlined and almost actually declined and going through that year even at the beginning of the year is just like man what are we doing what are we doing wrong and I found myself you know even during the week going is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life like is this real do I how many years do I really want to keep doing this um you know is am I having fun anymore I started questioning everything and in that race at Kansas in May I got in a bad wreck broke my back, got a compression fracture to my T5 vertebrae. So I basically, your vertebrae is the shape of a rectangular block, and I, I squished it in half and kind of like a pizza pie. Um, it turned into like a wedge. And I was out of the race car for seven weeks. And for that seven weeks, I was miserable. And I realized in that two-month span that I loved racing way more than I gave credit. Um, I had allowed it to become a job. I had allowed it to become work. Um, and when it got taken away from me in the blink of an eye, I realized how blessed and how fortunate I was to have it, um, to have it as a job, to have what predominantly through most of my childhood and, and teenage years was something that not only I paid money out of my own pocket for, but I enticed my whole family to pay money for me to go do now here I am getting paid to go do it um and I was complaining about it like how silly of me and so it was it was actually good for me it was a rude awakening um to realize that you know this is this is a privilege to get to do what I do and and to not to not take it for granted do you still look at it as as, the, as that privilege, and do you think back on that whenever you? I do. Start I, to get I down? still I still look at it very much as a privilege. Um, you know, I'm I'm very fortunate to get to what do what I do. I have a lot of gratitude. Um, you know, to be driving here at Stuart Haas Racing and in great equipment. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't good days and bad days. Um, but I just don't take I don't take the highs and lows as personal as I used to. Um, you know, I, I come at it with a different perspective than I did years ago, knowing that it's just all part of the ride and that I'm enjoying the ride. I'm enjoying the journey. Um, there's going to be days that are better than others. I mean, that's just part of life. Um, but that you've got to learn from those bad days and get better and the good days you have to savor. Physical fitness after the accident became a big part of your, your, your regiment. Mm -hmm. Um, how is that sort of changed you as a driver that now that you are a little bit more physically fit yeah so I've always taken fitness pretty seriously from the time back in 2010 um I got to share a race car with Jimmy Johnson um he was on 
Baby Watch. He, yeah, wasn't he was on it? Baby Watch with his first daughter Genevieve, and and they asked me to to fill in for him some and to be prepared to have to race if I needed to. So I spent a lot of time around Hendrick Motorsports at that time, and a lot of time with Jimmy. And I got to watch him at the time. I think he's five times, six time champion, four time champion. Yeah, who it, it doesn't matter, but a lot, a lot of time champion. Um, you know, the the man in, in our sport. And so watching him, watching his work ethic, watching the way he was working out and all those things kind of opened my eyes to like, hey, man, like you need you need to get your stuff together. Like this guy, this guy's the champion of our sport. And if you want to beat him, you've got to start acting like him. And so I started taking, you know, exercise more seriously at that point. And from that point forward, I've I've been in some shape or form um exercising whether it was lifting cycling whatever it was i've been been doing it after i broke my back that was the first time that i really started taking you know range of motion and mobility more seriously you know all the way leading up till then i'd go work out and pump iron and ride bikes and do whatever but i'd never stretch um never get on a foam roller None of those things. Never get a massage. You know, none of that stuff. That was that was a waste of time. Um, but after I broke my back, I really started getting a lot more diligent and not only working out and, you know, keeping my cardio fitness up, but then really range of motion, mobility, all of those things that, um, you know, play into making sure that you're loose and limber and, and you know, quite honestly, help you remain injury-free. Best bit of advice that you have received from any person whether it's been inside of racing outside of racing family member yeah. boss what what's the best bit of advice that you have received that you have then applied to your career so i don't think so i've gotten a lot of advice from a lot of people over my 35 year you know existence um I think that the one thing that has helped me throughout my entire life more than anything else was not a piece of advice, but more just an example. Um, and that's from my family. Uh, my mom, my dad, my grandparents, uh, my grandparents on both sides of my family, their their work ethic is incredible. And for me to be a kid... And to to witness that, to watch how they just work their butt off to to make ends meet for our family. Um, you know, my grandparents, uh, my dad's side of the family, sacrificing everything they had coming from Cuba to start a new life uh, here in America to to try and create a better life for the Almirola family that that came. You know, after them, um, my mom's parents you know, just a relentless work ethic to to be able to provide for their family and, and create a really great business, uh, auto body business in Tampa, um, and to, you know, go from struggling to make it to thriving, um, both, you know, both sides of my family. That, for me as a kid growing up in that environment, taught me how valuable work ethic was like you know you, nothing's going to be given to you you have to work for it you have to earn it you have to go get it you have to be hungry um and, and that i got to witness that and people can preach that all the time um you hear motivational speakers you know preach about that 
you hear all sorts of, you know, uh, quotes and, and all sorts of different things. But witnessing it with your own two eyes and watching it come to fruition right in front of you as you, you know, go through your childhood is is quite honestly what had the most impact on me and the rest of my life. I just, I, I realized at a very young age that, if I wanted to accomplish anything or make anything of myself that I had to work hard and go get it for myself. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's awesome. Absolutely. Eric, thank you so much yeah. for the time. This was really, really enjoyable. Yeah, this was fun. Yeah, good job. Yeah, well, we certainly appreciate it. We also want to give a special thank you to Dan Zacharias of Ford Performance for helping set this up. Kevin Wren, you, uh, as always, <laughs> did a great job. A couple more things. One, we would like you to subscribe to Dirty Air so you don't miss a single episode. And two, please give us a rating because we value your opinion. And truly, we want to make this better. And that rating system certainly helps helps us do that. So we appreciate you listening. Thanks for the time. Again, this is a Fox 8 Dirty Air podcast. I'm Kevin Conley. Until next time, enjoy the races. Thanks for listening to NASCAR Dirty Air. Follow us on myfox8.com. You've been listening to the Tribune Audio Network.